Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. You're arguably one of the best baseball players of all time. I'm trying to think of all these components of what transformed you from a talented, obsessed kid to one of the best players of all time. And it's never a matter of just talent. It's never a matter of just skill. It's never a matter of just practice. It's kind of a combination of all these things. There's also an element of luck. Joe Torre, the first baseman for the Cardinals, hurt his hand. Yes. You were the obvious choice to move up, and boom, now you're in the major leagues. And two and a half years removed from high school. Did you have a plan B? I had no plan B. To this day, I don't know what I would have done if I didn't make it. I had a high school education, and I was a good student, but I didn't want to go back to college. Since I was five years old, when my father put the first bat in my hands, started throwing tennis balls to me and telling us stories about Ty Cobb and Babe Ruth and Ted Williams. He taught us the history and the lore of the game, and I just fell in love with it. I bought in. So I've got Keith Hernandez here. Keith, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. I'm going to give you a big intro, but I'm going to keep it as tight as possible because I know you're strapped for time. You're arguably, and I think you'll probably be the first to argue this, you're arguably one of the best baseball players of all time, but you're multi-talented. We're, we're here because you just came out with a book. I'm Keith Hernandez, a memoir. It's partially a memoir. It goes up to 1980, kind of the, the critical years of your, your career. Um, describing how you you rose from basically zero to being, um, you know, the the MVP of the of the league in 1979 and and the, the batting champion in 1979, and then you talk a little bit about your your time with the Mets and and, and so on. Uh, you've also a lot of people probably know you because you were on a couple episodes of of Seinfeld, including uh, the finale. Right, you were on the, yes, the I was series finale, the most watched show in in history. And uh, now you're a broadcaster for the Mets. Uh, you've been a broadcaster for almost uh, 20 years, right? Yes. So I started, uh, I think, around 2000. I forget exactly when it is, but it's been around well over 15 years. Yeah, and, and so, so, so there's a bunch of things I want to talk about. But, I, but A, I really enjoyed the book. I'm Keith Hernandez, a memoir. I haven't read a lot of sports memoirs, but this is really good. I like the kind of... Um, style you tell it in, where you're going back and forth in yeah. time, and you have the flashbacks to to learning as a kid with your dad, and and we'll we'll talk about that in a second. I also want to mention, I really appreciate the book you wrote, uh, Pure Baseball, uh, pitch by pitch. I know it was you wrote it in 1994, right? But it it really is just a a. It's reminiscent of 
the classic book that everyone knows, The Science of Hitting by Ted Williams, which is like the Bible of hitting a baseball. And I just like how you, instead of just talking generally about everything baseball, you analyze pitch by pitch two games, the ups and the downs, like every decision made. And it's just a genius, from a writer's perspective, it's a genius approach of, of analyzing sports. It reminds me, there's, I don't know if you play poker, but there's a poker book uh, by a great poker player, Gus Hansen, Hand by Hand, where he analyzes every hand he plays cool. in poker. Cool. So it reminds me of that type of thing. Great. But um, so with that intro, I have a bunch of questions. Yes, fire away. I am personally really interested for any field how one rises from beginner to being the best. And it's never a matter of just talent. It's never a matter of just skill. It's never a matter of just practice. It's never a matter of just the, the mentors you have around you. It's never a matter of just psychology. It's kind of a combination of all these things. And in your memoir, you really see that. Uh, I, I, wanna, I wanna first focus on the role of, of psychology for you. Like, uh, you know, there, there's one point you're playing in the minor leagues, which is kind of, for people who don't know, it's kind of like almost uh, the way major league teams um, they, they they draft people and they throw them in the minor leagues and see who's good. If you're good, they move you up into the the main team. If you're not good, they throw you out. There's your first season, you bat 256, and the the manager or one of the managers for the Cardinals, uh, instead of bumping you down to nothing, uh, moves you up. And I thought that was a fascinating decision. That that wouldn't happen in today. You even point out that wouldn't happen in right. today's statistics-driven world. That was actually my second year in 1973. I was 19 years old. Uh, I had hit 256 the year before my first year in in, in organized ball, in A ball in Florida Florida State League in St. Pete. This was Little Rock in the Texas League, and I got off to. When you're that young and you come out of high school like I did. And you're only playing three games a week at the most. Mainly you'd play on weekends and in, in, in middle of the week. You, and so uh, the big jump is learning to play every day. And you were always the best. I was the best in my area. And I hit 500 and I pitched in championship games. And you're not going to hit 500 in the minor leagues. You know, you're not going to hit 400. Uh, you goal. say when you were in high school, you, you well, did I was everything. killing it. And it yeah. It's like everybody gets drafted to the top athlete. I mean, they they got the talent, and then it, then you're competing against the whole melting pot, the whole right. pool of the country and other country, our country and other countries. Um, I got off to a terrible start. I was a hothead. Didn't I hadn't learned to play every day. Joe Ducky Medwick was our minor league uh, uh, batting coach. And uh, Hall of Famer, Gas House Gang, the last guy to be the Triple Crown, win the Triple Crown in the National League in 1937. Which, to be clear, is uh, uh, batting average. Uh, RBIs, home runs. It's pretty impressive right. when you do that. When you lead the league in all those three categories, that's pretty. No one's, Although, if you lead them in home runs, chances are you're going to lead in RBIs. Yeah, but guess. maybe not home uh, a batting average. Right. So it's pretty special. And it hasn't been done since 1937 mm-hmm. in the National League. So Joe would always, they knew I was talented, so they kind of had an extra eye on me and would try to get me to calm down. I, I didn't break water coolers, but I certainly threw helmets, kicked up dirt, and and had temper tantrums. But how do they know? Here, this is what I really want to know. Like you said, in high school, 
you know, you could be by far the best, but then when you're thrown into the everybody's the best in high school, right. and then they get into the they get drafted for professional baseball, they get thrown into the minor leagues. Now they're they're with the best high school player of every right. city or, or town. best co- collegian. Yeah, and so right, and you went right straight out of high school, and uh, why did they think you were more talented than the other thousand people uh, spread out across all the minor leagues? Oh, I think I was pretty good. That's why, you know, the, the talent was there. The swing was there. <clears throat> and there were major league eyes on me, ex-major leaguers. Bob Kennedy is the man you referred to that set yeah. me up instead of down. Um, and he was our farm director. He ran the whole farm system. So he was the overseer. And he was a ba- he played for the Cleveland Indians, center fielder in the 50s. And he was a, their baseball eyes watching you. They see, they've, they've seen the talent come and go. You know, from every perspective, uh, great players are ta- very talented players with bad attitudes. Uh, the guy with less ability that works hard and makes it. And they've seen it all, and they make their judgments uh, not basic uh, solely on athletic ability, uh, but on character. At least the Cardinals were that way. You know, if they saw someone with bad character, Cardinals would not. There was always... In the minor leagues, there was always a thief on a team that would. You put your. They have a valuable box where everybody puts their wallet. When you got to play, you got. You're not going to play with your wallet and your ring and your jewelry, and they lock it up. When it was, it stays open until about a half hour before the game. There would always be someone that would. Uh, it was very rare that would go in and steal money because they didn't. I was paid five hundred dollars a month in a ball. It was one hundred ninety nine dollars every two weeks. And in Double A, I made seven fifty a month, and you only get paid during the season. And then I, uh, in Triple A, I made eleven hundred a month, and I thought I was, I was living right. And um, if someone was a thief, they would find out who it was. And that, and then no matter who that person was, this is the Cardinals. If you were number one draft pick, they released you. They didn't want you around. Okay, but you, to be fair, it wasn't when you were in the minors for the Cardinals. It wasn't like you exemplified great character either like you would get upset when you you know didn't play as well you would kick dirt into accidentally into someone's face and they would yep. they would see i did do that yes uh and that was an a ball but they saw that i had the desire to succeed well how'd they see that i worked hard i i came out to the park and i did my work and took my ground balls and did all everything i was supposed to do for people that are lazy that you know don't want to do the running and the, all that they don't you know you'd be surprised like is it one of those things where you would get to the park early and it wasn't wasn't quite sure I wouldn't get to the park that early I'd get there you know earlier but uh, but I wasn't one of those guys that would be the first to the ballpark but they saw the drive and the will and the desire to uh, succeed and they they're looking around to see who's got that little extra I mean, in Agassiz's book, which was so wonderful, he said that he has his brother, his dad taught him, both of them how to play tennis. Dad said in the book that uh, he'd hit a thousand balls to both of them. The, the other, the, his the one brother would go, that was it. Agassiz would stay and want a thousand more. Mm. That's what I'm talking about. And so that must have been um, reminded you, like your, your dad was a minor league player. I feel, you got kind of a head start on the game compared to yes. a lot of people. Your, your dad was a, a, a great minor league player. He taught you, and you starting from age five. Yep. You were obsessed with the game. I feel like you've been obsessed with the game from age five to sixty years later. N- now you're sitting in front of me. Like baseball's been everything for you. Like you went straight out of high school and into professional baseball. Your your dad trained you and your brother. Your brother was a minor league player. Uh, uh, 
obviously this was very important at cultivating whatever talent you had. Um, I don't know, could someone get that kind of start without that, that level of training from such an early age? Well, it certainly helps. Uh, a good friend of mine who played for the Cubs and the Royals, uh, Peter Marshall from Hollywood Squares, uh, the host, is his son. And Peter Marshall is a, uh, is a stage name, and it was, it's, it's, it was his real name and his son's name was Pete Lecoq. So you wonder why he changed his Peter Marshall changed his name. You know, welcome to Hollywood Squares. Here's your host. <laughs> That's not going to fly. But Pete went around with that name. He never played baseball until he was a sophomore in high school. And he played 12 years in the big leagues and had a decent career. So I, I don't have an answer for that, you know? But but he had a decent career. You had a Hall of Fame level career. Well, it certainly helped to have instruction from my father. But, but you know, it's really interesting. Like you break down, and I know we're, we're bouncing all over the place, but it's all related. Uh, I'll connect the dots. You had a conversation with Pete Rose, which you described towards the end of the book, where he broke it down mathematically, the difference yes. between an average player and a great player. And I found it to be fascinating when you break down the math. And I think that kind of analysis can be applied in every area of life. But he basically told you, if you just hit an extra hit, I think out of one out of every 78 at-bats. 100. 100 at-bats, you're going to go from an average player to having basically a right. Hall of Fame level Track record, uh, and also the the point was also uh, the ten nothing game, win or lose, your last at bat. You're in Atlanta or St. Louis or Cincinnati. It's steaming hot. It's August. You're around 110 games into the season, 120 games, and it's a last at bat, and you never give that at bat away. You, if you got three hits, you want four. If you got four hits, you want five. What do you mean give it away? Is that an option? Uh, you can go up there, and that's, you know, it's a long season, and it's 10 nothing one way or the other, and you can go up there and not be on point on that at bat. So the whole lesson from Pete was, and, you know, three, we'll just give the math to the people right here. You get up around 600 times a year. Five, six, so just break it down. So like four bat bats so a 30, game. So 30 times six is 180 hits. Uh, and that's 300, and you're great. 250 hitter, which is very average, not very good. Uh, six times 25 is, what, 150. So there's only 30 hits in the season that separates a 250 hitter. That's what you found so fascinating. And I did at the time when he told me, because I never, I was a young player coming up. I was in my early 20s, and that registered to me, and I never realized 30 hits is a difference between a very, very you know, average mediocre hitter to a 300 hitter in the course of a season. And his point was, how many at-bats do you give away in the course of a season? And that's why you can never give away an at-bat. So, so, so now it's, it's very interesting. Now that you described uh, what it means to give away an at-bat, it makes his other phrase, uh, be greedy for those yes. at-bats, much more relevant. And it, it reminds me, like, so you wrote this book, uh, let's see how many pages this book is, like a little over 300. You could do the same math here. If you write 300 words a day, you have this book in a year. If you write 100 words a day, it's three three years. Right. And that's often the difference between a prolific writer and somebody who has to find another way to make a living. So, you know, I like you, go, the, you see, your mind works different than mine. That's very interesting. You're absolutely right. But it's, you can apply it to every single. Yes, like, yes. for instance, you know, I, I th have some you know, billionaires on the podcast. And if they come up with, you know, if they network with one person a day as opposed to watching a TV show, 
that's an extra 365 connections they right. make during a year. And right. that's often the difference between a billion and a million. So it's always the person has the drive. Yeah, and, and, and also, again, it's the math is sort of easy, right? When you look at it, it's like that one extra hit per 100 or writing 200 extra words a day or making one more phone call a day as opposed to watching Game of Thrones. <laughs> gotcha. And also, too, I think the point is once you start like sloughing, you give away one at bat or one phone call because you, when you found success, and then it's easier to give it away another one down the road. So if you don't give it away, you've got that standard that you, you stick that. It's a work ethic. Right, and, and like people listening might think that's really sort of obvious. Like, of course, I'll give that a little bit extra. But you even um, recount the conversation you have with another player who basically said to you, Keith, you know, watch out. Don't If you do... <laughs> 0.340 batting average, they're going to expect 0.350 next right. year. Like, just stick to like 0.29, right. and no one will expect too much from you. Well, there's the opposite end right there. It was this Jose Cardinal was the player, a very, very good player for the Cubs, for the Yankees, uh, Cleveland. He was a heck of a player, and he was a 290, 280 hitter. And uh, on my MVP year, my batting title year, uh, I believe it was, I'm not sure. We had the we got my I got a lot of the the years jumbled up, and at baseballreference.com was so good to go back. So we wanted to be accurate. It was a very useful website. Uh, but there's Jose Cardinal saying, "Hey, you hit you hit what you doing hitting 330?" Like you said, he goes, "Next year, if you hit 330 and you hit 310, they're going to say you had a bad year because you can hit." With one arm tied behind your back, you can hit 275. Just hit 275. That's all they expect from you. I I just looked at him. I love Jose, and I just it just didn't. It wasn't in my uh, it wasn't in my DNA to but, be that way. But but the the trap is with that attitude. He was still uh, a, a you know a baseball player that made a living from it and had a good career. Yep. But that potentially because he didn't have that be greedy kind of philosophy of of you know. Put in your all when even if you're winning ten nothing on a hot day, uh, that kept him from you know hitting, you know that kind of stratosphere that that you and and several other players have hit like Pete Rose and and so on. So I think you it's important to realize you could still have a career at something without that be greedy attitude, without that mathematical attitude, but it won't put you in the icons of whatever you're doing. Well, those that. That worked the hardest. You know, I've seen a lot of players that had a lot of ability and they blew it. The door opens up for only so long, and you better stick your foot in because it'll shut right in your face. Get in that door and shut it behind you. Uh, I've seen so many players that had great ability. Uh, it, maybe it just wasn't in their blood to be a baseball player. You know, it, it, they didn't have the drive. And I've seen a lot of guys. I can't believe it though. Someone's in the major leagues. Well, I'm talking about minor leagues coming up as well. You know, once you get to the major leagues, uh, you've kind of they minor leagues is the where they weed out everybody. Like how many people are in the minor leagues versus the major leagues? There's when I went to my first camp in '72, the Cardinals had eight teams, Uh, so 25 times eight. There's 25 players to a team. I'm terrible at math. You're better. You do the math. 200. Okay, so there were 700 kids in camp. 500 kids got sent home and they got sent home quick. So, so again, like your first year, you batted 0.256. And as you mentioned, in today's world of sabermetrics, and, and for those who don't know what that means, 
watch the movie or read the book uh, The Money Ball by, by Michael Lewis. The movie had uh, Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill. Great movie, great book. Uh, it's all about how statistics and analyzing people's statistics has kind of taken over the way managers uh, select players and manage their baseball teams. In today's world of sabermetrics, somebody in some office that never met you with a PhD in statistics right. would just say, "Oh, this guy's a point two five six. Send him home. He's not one of the five, he's not one of the two hundred out of the seven hundred. Well, let's just. Uh I make that point in the book too, and you know I'm kind of coming around to analytics because there's a lot of players I played with, ex-players, and they're in the front offices now, and the in the developing areas of the front offices, and and um, they say there is a lot of things you can wean out of. You'd be surprised in evaluating a player, but there's more to the game than just. I always say statistics are just very sterile, um, and they don't really tell the guts of a player, the, the fortitude of a player, and you need eyes on as well. I mean, it's, it's a useful tool. As far as my 256, I, was, they gave, I got $30,000 signing bonus, which was pretty good for, for, very good, unheard of, for a 42nd round draft pick. At, uh, at age 18. At age 18. And so they were going to watch me, okay, 256, let's, they're going to give me two, three, four years, but if I continue to hit 250 over a three or four year period, pretty soon they're going to say that window of opportunity is over. They're going to say, well, he is what he is. I guess we made a mistake on this one. So, so there's a little bit of um, almost investment bias in that, you know, Bob Kennedy wanted to prove you were a good pick. So maybe that's another reason why he said, okay, let's, let's try him out in double A and see if the increased pressure will make him better. Well, they advanced me up to double A. Modesto was the next step up in the California State League. They had, they had three A ball teams. I, uh, the Midwest League was the uh, low A ball. The uh, Florida State League was a very tough uh, middling A ball league. Jim Rice was played for Winter Haven there, and he was just he, just, he was the best player in the league. Uh, he wound up being in the Hall of Fame, played for the Red Sox, great career. Uh, then there was Modesto High A, and he Bob told me also he didn't move me to Modesto because he wanted to keep me away from my father, which I found very interesting. He I, wanted I to wean me from he wanted to wean me from my dad. He didn't, and, which I find very interesting, and it shows how keen he was that he wanted me to grow up on my own and not have the influence of my father. He knew the relationship, and he kept me away from my dad, and he put me up to double A, and I, I, I really struggled in double A. And then we get to the point where he's, I have the, the bad season, the up-and-down season. I almost have what I feel like an out-of-body experience in the bathtub, and my average plummets in 10 days, and... He calls me up, and it just turned my career around. He sent me to AAA, and it turned my career around. It wasn't for him. If it was analytics, they might have sent me down, and I might have been finished. And that's what he, that was in the book when he talked to me about it years later, what he said. So I think the important lesson there is you've got to be able to show that grit to the people who are the decision makers, and that kind of overrides the statistics to some extent. If you've got the talent and the drive, which you clearly did, and you wanted to show that, but somehow it wasn't coming through for whatever reason. You had to show this grit, and then he recognized, okay, moving this guy up uh, to, to you know another another uh, level would maybe make him struggle all that much more to to step up his game. Like what happened? Like how did you step up your game playing against further competition? I have no explanation for it. It was it was so hot in 1973. 
it flooded in the Mississippi River. We were in Little Rock. And uh, it flooded a mile on each side of the Mississippi. It was just a sweltering, sweltering summer in Little Rock. And the Texas League was a brutal travel league, and it's documented in the book. I hated it. I hated the Texas League. When I went up to Tulsa, uh, it's in Oklahoma. It's at the fringe of the Great Plains, and you have the winds blowing off the Great Plains from the west. And it was, uh, it was hot there, but the wind was re- just, I can't say refreshing because it was a hot wind, but it wasn't the stagnant heat of, uh, of, of Little Rock. And I was playing with a bunch of ex-major leaguers. I was a 19-year-old kid. And I'm playing with the guys that had years in the bidder. They collected their baseball cards, and they were trying to get back up. There's a whole team was full of them, a bunch of characters. Did you feel, though, okay, uh, here I am. This is the last chance I'm going to get to play with my heroes. Uh, I've got to step it up. Like, did it, did, Was your brain, did you, did you feel like, oh, my gosh, this is it. I have to perform better. I did not feel that way. Um, I, had, I, I joined the team in Wichita. I flew from Little Rock to Wichita. Jack Kroll was the manager. He called me in the office, and he, we were ten games because we're ten games under five hundred. We're in third place. We're going nowhere. We got thirty-five games left. You're going to play every day. Just relax and have fun. And I just got off hot. I was a, it was a new it was a it was a new environment, and I think it just gave me. Uh, I needed a change of, uh, of, of 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 scenery, and I just got hot quick, and uh, it just turned my career around. I hit three thirty. Uh, that last 35 games, I drove in 28 runs. We win the championship, the division, the last day of the season. We came from behind, and uh, we, we, and we won the American Association uh, playoffs, and we were champions. It's, I can't put my finger on it, but Bob Kennedy obviously was correct in his assessment. Yeah, so, so uh, then kind of, you know, there's also an element of luck the next year. Uh, Joe Torrey, the first baseman for the Cardinals, hurt his hand. Yes, you were the obvious choice to move up, and boom! Now you you had gone from a, a middling career in the Double A to now a year or so later you're in the I'm major in the big, leagues. Yes, uh, and two and a half years removed from high school. Two and a half years removed from high school, which also shows again like this single minded focus. Like instead of having a backup plan, like oh, I'm going to major in economics in college. Like you just you just pushed and pushed and pushed high school. You know post-high school, minor leagues, like all you did was baseball. Did you have a plan B? Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period and I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and Having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. 
My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims. Dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? 
hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. I had no plan B. I To this day, I don't know what I would have done if I didn't make it. I mean, clearly I have other talents. I mean, I couldn't rob banks or anything like that. I had to find something else to do. I had a high school education, and I was a good student, but I didn't want to go back to college. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Since I was five years old, when my father put the first bat in my hands, and that he sawed down a little league bat, so well, the bat was, I was five years old, so I couldn't have a big old wieldy bat, so he made the bat comfortable in our hands and started throwing tennis balls to me and telling us stories about Ty Cobb and Babe Ruth and Ted Williams. My dad served in the war in World War II and played with Stan Musial, Cookie Lavagetto, all those names. He taught us the history and the lore of the game, and I just fell in love with it. I bought, I bought in. Yeah, and so you, I, I, there's one uh, conversation you have with the, maybe the greatest hitter ever, Ted Williams, uh, and he just starts drilling you right away yes. about all his, you know, he, in his book, The Science of Hitting, he identifies all the different points and how you should, you know, that the pitcher could throw to and, and how you should hit for each point. And you describe to him as a kid setting up a tire so you could practice hitting against that main. That was what, that was from his book, The Science of Hitting, which is the hitting Bible to yeah. this day. And and so you, I, he was obviously very happy, but you were doing this as a kid, like over and over again, like it's the kind of the Andre Agassi story, right? And my father uh, bought that book, and that book was a tool for us when it came out uh, when we were growing up as a kid, and so um, he was very pleased to hear that. And Ted was a very tough guy too. So. He backed off though. He yes. he was like he comes into your signing autographs. Right. He like boom starts drilling you. Yes, you're you're. And I'm nervous and sheepish. I mean, you know, I just that was the year I won the batting title. That's why he came over and I hit three forty four. So he he wanted to say hello to me. And uh, you know, three forty four is not an easy. That's tough to do. I had a great year, and everything just fell into place for me that year after that bad April I had. And um, he just wanted to pick my brain. And um, he said something, he's a very, very manly guy, and, and uh, he said something that kind of embarrassed me, and he leaned into me and said, I'm sorry, the people who were around us listening, and he goes, I apologize, I, I didn't mean to embarrass you. Um, blah, 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 then he went on. He changed the whole tone of the conversation, but still it was a, I'm talking to Ted Williams, the greatest hitter of all time, and, uh, and he just says, what's the easiest pitch to hit? Out of the blue, I go, oh, God, I go, the pitch up, 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 up and away. He goes right. Why? I'm going. God, leave me alone. <laughs> I go. I don't. It's just easy for me. And he goes. I'll tell you why. And he gets in his batting stance with an imaginary bat. And he goes. Because you take your bat here, your take back, and look where your hands go to the pitch up and away. It's the shortest distance between A and B to a ball coming into you. And I, I said that makes perfect sense. I never thought of it geometrically like that. But it's interesting how he thought about it geometrically, but you th think about it with the eyes of a child because as a child, right. that was the hit you were practicing over and over again. Right. So it didn't necessarily matter the geometric. You had physical memory 
from just practicing that particular hit right. because of him over and over as a kid. I was never a guy. I tried to play golf when I quit when I retired. I have a, I have a chronic back. I can't play. I'm not a guy that is okay. Your take back here, point A. Here's your second step. Here you go to here, and you come down. I. It's a mechanical way to teach. I'm rhythmic. I'm I'm a feel guy, and uh, that's the way I was taught by my father. I was a very rhythmic hitter, and to a point where I probably talked myself into a lot of slumps because when you when you, if I felt that the rhythm was just a fraction off, I would feel it. And what do you mean by the rhythm? Uh, pitchers like my dad used to always say the, pit, the hitting is like a train from from stop a train that's stopped. He goes, the train just doesn't go. I should have put it in the book. I just remembered this. The train doesn't go from stop position and here are the things and just boom. It's got to go boom, 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 and then it goes forward, right? You got to get momentum going backward to move all that weight, then to go forward. Mm -hmm. And that's hitting. Pitchers and his wind up, you go back on your back foot, and then you, as the ball releases, you see it out of his hand, you move forward, and it's like a little pendulum. And, and that's a rhythmic, I was a rhythmic hitter. This is interesting because, and this is a naive question, but the ball's coming at 90 miles an hour or whatever yeah. the speed is, and you have to decide, mm -hmm. there's several kinds of pitches. So it could be fastball, it could be slider, it could break one way, it could break the other way. Right. You have to kind of decide in, I don't know how, it's, it's 60 feet away. 60 feet, 6 inches. Yeah, so 90 miles an hour, it's getting to you in like a fraction of a second. I guess the entire, would you, would you say, what percentage of the skill of being a good baseball player is deciding in, those, in that fraction of a second where the ball's going to end up? Well, I always say it, you've got a cylindrical bat in your hand and you've got a spherical ball coming at you at a high rate of speed. My psychiatrist told me this uh, after I retired, and uh, I never thought of it that way either. It's physics. Ball's coming in, and he said, you're a visual person. You know, when I walk down the street, I look, I, you know, Manhattanites never look at the architecture. I look at the architecture. I'll see, I bought a baseball mitt uh, from a, a guy in the street. It was sitting there, Indian style, had all this pottery. And I'm walking by, talking to the girl I was with at the time, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw this beautiful baseball mitt with a ball in it. It was like a, for, a for a thing on the coffee table. Out of the corner of my eye. So he said, you're very visual. You've had the, you were trained to track a ball coming in at a high rate of speed. But there are telltale uh, signs. Believe me, when you're red hot, it is in very much in slow motion. It is a very methodical decision that you make. Uh, this, this seems the ball has giveaway. Uh, it has tendencies. It's, slider has a little red circle in it. Curveball spins like a moon in the orbit. Um, the split finger you couldn't read. That's I mean, it's such a tough pitch to hit. Uh, so you see your focus is out of the hand. You don't look at the windup. You are, but your focus is point of release. So you got to get that ball out of that hand as fast as possible. Read the pitch and anticipate what it's going to do. You, and you have an idea. You face, it gets easier. Lou Brock told me the longer you're in the big leagues, you face the same pitchers and you get an idea. Just note and mark. And we didn't have computers in those days. In the back of your head, how they pitch you. Well, well, but it's interesting. So, so Lou Brock told you this. But also, I believe in the book you mentioned, Dick Selma tells yes. you this: like for every pitcher, have a plan. And you and you mentioned almost like you 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 mentioned to Ted Williams. It's almost like you know 
it's sort of like this realization you have, like previously you just kind of assumed a fastball would be coming and then you would adjust accordingly. Right. But but you have to really analyze for every pitcher. Uh, uh, how have they pitched to you before? How have they pitched to other players? And you kind of have to have a plan for pitchers. Right. So, so it's not just kind of analyze, it's not just taking a random person and then trying to figure out what ball they're throwing. It's you also have to understand the pitcher, and this is what you also talk about in, in pure baseball. Right, and uh, that comes with experience. When you're a young kid, you just see the ball and hit it. You're, you're 18, 19 years old, making your way through. When you get to the AAA level, you're stuck. Like I said, I started playing with ex-major leaguers, and they must have seen in me uh, something special because Dick Selma came up to me and said, you know, was the first guy to say, hey, they know the pitchers are trying to get you out. Are you paying? What, what, what are you doing up there? I go, I'm just looking for the ball and fastball and hitting it. And he goes, well, you know, they got a plan. Start paying attention to how they're pitching you. And that was the first, the first guy I did. Larry Durker did it in the big leagues, uh, the great Larry Durker, uh, when I played with Larry in 76, 77. And uh, Jim Cott, uh, who so, I played with. So, so again, this, you know, there's Pete Rose with the math. There's uh, Dick Selma and Lou Brock with... You know, have a, having a plan which kind of separates the way you just described it separates the major leaguers from the minor leaguers. Like you have to have that plan. And I'm just trying to think of all these components of what transformed you from a talented, obsessed kid to you know one of the best players of all time. And you know, one other one other event that you talk about in the book that intrigued me. At one point, you were having a, a slump with the Cardinals. They moved you down back to the minor leagues. Right. Did you cry? Uh, oh, yeah, I did. That was a very low point for me. Um, that was my first full season. I got called up in 74 when Torrey sprained his thumb, and I did well uh, the last uh, five weeks of the season. Joe came back, and I, I got spot play. They traded him in the offseason to the Mets here, and I was the heir apparent, and I started. I was first year I broke camp, and I had a terrible April. I got benched. The team got off to a bad start. And I was basically overwhelmed. I wasn't emotionally ready. I mean, it's, it's kind of daunting to when you be a, uh, obsessed with baseball and you collect baseball cards like I did, and you watch baseball on TV. <clears throat> you know, and I'm uh, 20 years old, and all of a sudden I look up and there, I get in the box, and there's Tom Seaver, there's Steve Carlton, there's Don Sutton, and I wasn't ready for it. I was overwhelmed. And you scared? And it, uh, I wasn't scared. Let's just say I was timid and uh, I didn't have the confidence. And I just wasn't emotional, emotionally ready. And I got sent down. And yeah, I cried when I went home and I drove down to Tulsa. And uh, it's a great picture in a book of Hector Cruz and myself, my first day back in Tulsa. I felt humiliated. I felt like I failed. I didn't want to come out of the clubhouse and show my face. We had great fans in Tulsa. Uh, we always had around four or five thousand people every game. Did you feel career your career was over? Um, at that point, I was shaken, uh, but I wasn't going to quit. And I went down the minor leagues, uh, down to back down to Tulsa after I led the league in hitting the year before at three fifty two, and I hit three thirty, and I killed it. And they called me back up in October. Uh, Maybe that was the w way of getting you psychologically ready. Was well, they had to through, get me back down, put, put you through this hell. To see if you could rise back up. If they'd have kept me up, I would have been destroyed. Huh. I, I, I was not going to come out of this. Looking back at it now, I was not going to. I needed to go back down for more seasoning. You know, which is which actually really relates to the title of this book. So the title of this book is "I'm Keith Hernandez," 
And the reason, or part of the reason that's the title is because that's a line from Seinfeld where you're trying to get up enough courage to kiss Elaine and you're like, I'm Keith Hernandez. And, but this is related to all of these stories really, which is, you even mentioned in the book, you suffered from low Mm self-esteem. And how could that be? Like you were the best player in high school, one of the best players in the minor leagues, then you know, you're cruising up to the major leagues. What did it mean for you to have low self-esteem? Well, I think... And maybe this was the way you pushed yourself. I think everybody has self-doubt. Um, Some people don't. I, I, I'm, when, I, it's inter- when I won the MVP and I became a different person, I was, been, I was married, had, a, had a, a child, and when I won the MVP in 79 uh, in the batting title, um, I just became a different person, and that marriage was doomed. But you became a different person. But even meeting Ted Williams, you were, as you say, sheepish. Well, it's Ted Williams. <laughs> it's, you know, and I'm a 25 year old kid. But you were the best player in the in the in baseball. Uh, that year, that I point. was. But I had to do it again. That's another thing there that I and uh, I I went into the 1980 season. Uh, the the uh, I had a bad uh, 75. I got sent down. Got called back up, did good in October, uh, September. 76, I had a terrible first half. They benched me. We got out. We were, were Phillies run away with it. We're in fifth place. They play me every day the second half. I hit 333 second half of the season. I have a great second half, playing every day. 77, I have a breakout year. Hit 291, 15 home runs, drive at 99, 91 runs. And then at 78, I have a good first half, and I completely fall apart in 78 in the second half. I hit like 220 in the second half. I drive in like 18 runs. Terrible. Then I have the MVP. So then I go into 80, and the press is saying, well, which is the real Keith Hernandez? And I felt it. I wanted to, had to put two seasons back to back. And I'd always had bad Aprils. And that April was looming over me like a scarlet letter. And I went into that season tense and nervous. And I'll be darned if I didn't have first series. Uh, I just... It was there, and then when the month was over, and the book ends at this at May first, because that's how that's how important April was. I had a great, my first great April. Why do you think you pushed yourself to that great April? Is it because you had this obsession with I've got to put together two seasons? Well, I'm coming off a great year, and I was confident that this is it. this was me. How can I not? But still, I had to prove it. It's always I, Lou Brock played with a love for the game and and, and embraced the challenges. I played out of fear of failure. And it's much easier to play with you embrace it and embrace the game and the challenges than to go up there and say, when, uh, I would always be better when, uh, uh, when the, I was backed against the wall. I felt like my dad would always say, he taught us to be good two-strike hitters, taught us to strike zone. He says, when you've got two strikes on you, you're like, this was his term too. It's, it's, you're like a wounded cat backed up into a corner surrounded by uh, wild animals that want that want to kill you. That's a, that's how you got a hit with two strikes. But some people will will that will cave them in that fear. Like how did you how did it make you step? What makes you the person who steps up as a person as opposed to the person who caves in from the fear? Because who's going to go hit for me? I have to do it. I mean, I had two big clutch hits in both World Series, and I both those at bats were so pressure packed. I mean, they in '82 we're we're losing to the uh, seventh game to uh, Milwaukee. 
Gene Tennis, the veteran right-hand hitter, catcher for the world champion Oakland A's, who was our backup catcher, he pinch hits. They walk him, and intention, not intentionally, but they pitch around him to pitch to me, left-hander. And we're down a couple runs. And I remember in the on-deck circle, I said, they're pitching around him. They're going to pitch to me. It's going to be on me. I went, holy cow. So what are you going to do? You're going to go run and hide? You got to get up there. So I just kind of walked up to the plate. My dad always said in a, in a tough situation, he goes, take a deep breath, count to 10, take another deep breath, get in the box and go to work. So, I, so, so that's a way of being very present in the moment without thinking of right. all the, 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 the situation around you. Those were two very stressful at-bats for me, and I succeeded on both of them, very clutch hits. In 86, uh, obviously against the Red Sox in Game 7, I got a similar situation. They pitched around Tim Tuffle, left-hander. Hurst, I couldn't believe it. I go, Where are they, 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 they're crazy. But I was established, and I said, they're crazy. And I remember my brother was in the stands, and I looked up when, I, when Tuffle walked, and I was on one knee, and I went to get I looked up to my brother in the box seats behind home plate. My, my brother is very prominent in the book. My, yes. my greatest fan, my greatest booster, uh, no jealousy. It's this very special relationship. And he was sitting around 15 rows back at home plate, and he just stood up and gave me the pump fist. And that kind of took the pressure off of me, and I got in the box and got a base hit. That's great. Well... I I I I want to wrap this up. I know you're you're pinched for for time. I can stay here all day. This has been a great interview. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I do have another question. And but I just want to first say this this book, a memoir. I'm Keith Hernandez. is a, a, a great sports memoir, and uh, there's so many interesting things about how to be a peak performer. I think mo most importantly is all all the different advice you got from mentors like could be applied to to every situation and we've we've only touched upon a, a few of those things but i really like the pete rose approach i really like the have a plan one one question i have which is a little outside the book uh 1986 you helped the mets win the world series obviously 1987 you're the team captain and then by 1989 they're trading you like obviously you were really loyal to the mets what what's What's the role of the team's loyalty to the player? I feel like that doesn't really happen anymore. Well, it, it, it's a business. Players are traded. The first trade always hurts the worst because you feel you. I came up with the Cardinals. You feel a part of the family, and it's you feel rejected. I mean, they, they got someone else that's going to take your spot. They feel it's better. Um, yeah, but you could trade they, it from the Cardinals for like two non-players. Yeah, basically. but there was a lot going on there. Whitey and I didn't get along, and that if there is a second book. We'll go further. We'll we'll take it up from eighty to present, and that book will have a have a lot of interesting things that I'll have to deal with. You know, if we do that uh, that second book, which I'm hopeful. Um, uh, the second when the, they didn't trade me, they let me go. Carter and I, and I, I broke my kneecap in a collision in in eighty eight. I was thirty six. I had thirteen years. I was never on the disabled list. Uh, and um, I collided with a guy that was a second baseman for the Dodgers, Dave Anderson. I'm 203 pounds. We collide in on a double play. He comes to tag me, and he's 160 pounds. I knocked him into the next county, but our knees knocked, and he broke my kneecap. Uh. And he cut it like a diamond cut horizontally across my kneecap, and I was out eight weeks, and I came back in the heat of August, and um, I didn't play well. I was I, I, I just... Was it was uh, you can't you're not 21 years old you don't you come back from injuries better in your 20s and you do in your my mid to late 30s uh, so um, 
Frank Cashin made the right assessment. I was finished. I I thought I could still play. I wound up going to Cleveland. I signed to Cleveland as a free agent for two a two year deal, and I went to camp. I realized within uh, th- around a week that I had lost some skills. I'd certainly had lost two steps because of the knee. And things that I took for granted my whole career, all of a sudden I'm taking a lead off a base and I'm afraid I can't score on a base hit. And all that trepidation come in, things that I just forever never even thought twice about and I'm, my skills are diminishing. And I was embarrassed in that in Cleveland uniform by the way I played. And I knew I, I, knew I was finished. So that's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah, and then and then you 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 left the game, and it feels like you got you you mentioned you didn't w- even watch a baseball game for mm-hmm. years afterwards, where you were just burnt out. And I, but my career didn't I didn't have a Ted Williams, Derek Jeter ending to my career. You know, I had a shot at the Hall of Fame. Uh, if I had played a couple more years, I would have had over twenty five hundred hits. I, I would have had close to f- maybe thirteen fourteen hundred RBI if I played two more full seasons. Uh, but you know, the body just finally gave out. And um, the athlete is always the last one to say, to, to realize that it's over. And it's just, you know, it's something you've done your whole life. When I was retired, to think about it, I was 37 years old. I got a whole second half of my life ahead of me. And what am I going to do? I didn't know what I wanted to do. I saved my money, thank God. You know, I always had, I put my money away in deferred compensation. Uh, right when I was 20 years old, and uh, I had that program going on, so I knew I was going to have a steady income and a very good one. Uh, but still, what am I going to do? Am I just going to sit and twiddle my thumbs the rest of my life for the next 35 years? That's pretty. It's daunting. And then, um, I mean, you describe how uh, Elaine from the restaurant Elaine's yes. sort of pushed you back into the game. But as a as a bro- broadcaster, you've won two Emmys now as a as a professional sports. Broadcaster, you've written four books. This is the latest. I'm Keith Hernandez. Great book. I hope you write a fifth detailing 1980 and onwards. And actually, even your years as a, a broadcaster, I would love oh, to, would, yeah. to read about. But, um, you know, so many lessons. And and thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast, Keith. It's, it's such a, a, a pleasure to me. And also, I was a Huge fan of your appearances on Seinfeld. We didn't even get much of a chance to talk about that. But uh, just last question, was that fun? It was terrifying. It was a whole week of rehearsal, and I had never acted. I was a year and a half retired. Um, I had no aspirations to be an actor. They just Jerry's a Met fan from Brooklyn. I was his favorite player. He conceived the, this, this episode, and then... That's how it happened, and uh, I just on a lark said, "Okay, I'll go and try it." And I got the script, and I went, "Holy cow, I'm a guest star! I got all these lines." But I got through it, and the process that was so interesting for me—I just was like, "I got to get through this," because I realized I leave in a week, they go on to the next episode, and I better—I better not screw up. But on Monday till Saturday, when we had the final shoot, watching the creative process, there was three other writers. There's Larry David. There's Jerry and the principal actors were all contributing around the table. Well, let's try this. Can I? How about this? And Larry David was very okay. Let, let's. Get, and Larry David would have the final say, yes or no. So watching how they worked with the script to make it better as the week progressed, that was just absolutely a, an experience of a lifetime. Well, that's great, Keith. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I tell you, I really enjoyed this. I wish we can stay longer. Well, come back anytime, and uh, we'll definitely have you back for the next book as well. Okay, great. Thanks for having Thanks, me. Thanks, Keith. 
Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 